Um, good evening. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you all here, and I know that for many, uh, last week was exceptionally busy with Freeze, so your continued energy is much appreciated. Uh, my name is Henry Little, and along with uh, Josephine Breeze, <laughs> Josephine Breeze, uh, we are the directors of Breeze Little, a commercial contemporary art gallery based in Clerkenwell, London, uh, just down the road from here. Uh, this evening, it is a great privilege to be hosting Dr. Noah Horowitz on Selling the Unsellable, bringing experiential and ephemeral works of contemporary art to market. This is our third lecture at the London School of Economics and Political Science, proudly in association with LSE Arts. Previous topics have included the state of the global art market with Geoffrey Bolton, Managing Director of Art Insight, and I believe Geoffrey's here. Uh, and uh, Melanie Gerlis, art market editor for the art newspaper on emerging art markets. It is a very, very great pleasure to introduce Dr. Noah Horowitz. Noah is the uh, author of Art of the Deal, Contemporary Art in the, financial, in the Age of the fin Global Financial Market. He received his PhD from the Courtauld Institute of Art. He formerly served as the founding director of the VIP Art Fair, the first ever online art fair. He currently lives in New York, where he is a member of the faculty at the Sotheby's Institute of Art and is the executive director of the Armory Show. Finally, just a few points. There will be plenty of time for questions at the end, so please hold on to them until then. Um, Noah's book is actually available for sale just outside, and Noah will be signing the books for anyone who'd like to buy them. When we finish the lecture after the questions, please, if you could all remain seated so you can get there and then you can sign any books if people would like them. Um, we're also going to be uh, informally gathering in the George IV pub, which is in the center of the LSE canvas, uh, campus. We don't have a bar tab, I'm afraid, but if you'd like to join us, please, uh, please do. Um, and if you could join me in giving uh, a very warm welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Henry and uh, Josephine. This is, um, I spent eight years in London, um, most of them right across the street at the Courtauld, so it's really nice um, to be here. There's a number of people that I don't think have ever been to an art lecture, which I'm amazed have turned out to this. They're old friends of mine, so it's very special, um, and many others um, that I don't know, and um, it would be nice to meet you over a pint um, later. Um, it's, uh, it's a very ambitious title, which Henry sort of forced upon me. Uh, that you know is really um, a lecture about how all that stuff that you see in museums and galleries, you kind of wonder what you collect and what you actually get and how it all works kind of comes together, which was really a starting point um, of my PhD. Um, I studied uh, at the Courtauld. Prior to that, I was um, in the U.S. and um, actually, um, the gentleman sitting up there, I interned with at Goldman Sachs back in the, the heyday um, when I was thinking that I'd go into the financial world. Um, and my PhD really began um, as a study of um, how people invest in the art market. Um, and as I got deeper and deeper involved with that, and actually when I was beginning my PhD, I thought that I would perhaps be advised by a faculty member here at the LSE, which was one of the initial ideas. And I got more and more interested um, less on, on the sort of strictly financial side of the art world in terms of the sort of dollars and cents of how people invest in the art market, but dealing with the stickier questions of again, how everything that we see in galleries and museums today comes into the market. Um, so on the one hand, uh, my PhD looked at uh, the kind of art investment universe, um, all the literature that had been written about that, and all the art investment initiatives that one hears about and reads about pretty constantly now for the last decade. 
Um, but it looked at the opposite side of that as well, which was this other side of looking at video art or installation art or conceptual art. And um, a lot of that um, and some of what we'll talk about today had a sort of its original history in the market was very much opposed to being in the market at all. Um, and uh, what I tried to do um, in my research and, and subsequent book, which I encourage you to buy, um, uh, looks at the history of those types of practices and how they come into market. So the lecture today will effectively, um, you know, we'll spend about 45 minutes diving into, um, you know, Noah's art history of how this stuff came to be. And um, hopefully there'll be, uh, you know, a good 30 plus minutes um, at the end of that to ask any questions that you have um, about um, how that all works. And hopefully, um, some of what I'm assuming a lot of you went to freeze this weekend, um, you know, some of what you've seen there might make a little bit more sense um, after this. Um, in terms of the outline, then, we'll just begin with a sort of brief um, summation of where the art market is today um, and then go into the, the sort of economics of, of what I kind of loosely define as immaterial art. So looking at all those types of practices, again, which um, unlike maybe more conventional forms of painting or sculpture, don't have a natural um, position in the art market um, as a sort of durable art good, but um, exist on the, on the sort of fringes of it. Um, we'll look at um, the, the beginnings of, of kind of conceptual art or kind of hardcore first generation conceptual art in the 60s and 70s um, and how that type of art came into the market and then use that as a platform to understand how uh, the multiplicity of different art forms that one sees nowadays um, engage with the market and uh, sort of come up to date with some, some current practices. Um, kind of given the nature of the material, because this is an unfolding dialogue, it's a little bit different, I suppose, than a more conventional art historical lecture where you're dealing with something that's already sort of a moment in time that's very crystallized and makes sense um, historically. Um, my reading is inherently selective, so we're looking at a lot of examples that hopefully most of you that um, are engaged in the art world nowadays are, are fairly familiar with, um, but maybe haven't really um, fully understood or, or unpacked um, how the different constituents engage with the market. Um, and as a result of the different practices we'll be looking at, it's very interdisciplinary. So there's not um, just installation art, it's not just performance art, it's not just conceptual art, but it's a, a variety of, of different things coming together. Um, in terms of where we are today in the market, um, we've seen a huge rise in the last decade um, of, of, of art sales. Um, the, the figures presented here um, are compiled by a woman called Claire McAndrew, who's um, an art market economist. Um, she publishes an annual report um, at uh, each March uh, in conjunction with TAFAF, which is the big uh, fair in Maastricht. And uh, you know, the data sort of speaks for itself. Um, she estimates that in 2002, there were $22 billion, or euros rather, of art sales internationally um, in, the, in the sort of auction and private markets. Um, and that reached a peak of $48 billion uh, in 2007. Um, obviously, in the financial crisis, things came down, but have also come back up to a point where, in the 2011 um, period, it was just under the peak um, of, of the boom in 2007. Um, certainly the biggest, um, I, I wouldn't say just driver of that, but the biggest um, space that's really increased um, prolifically and, and is covered extensively in the media nowadays is the contemporary trade. Um, in 1998, um, there were $44 million of, of contemporary art sales at auction. Um, that's defining contemporary art as art made um, by artists born after 1945. 
Um, that went to a high of 1.35 billion um, in 2008, fell off, and again has come back up substantially. So the growth of the contemporary art market as a whole, um, and this is here just scoped through auction sales, um, really speaks for itself. Um, I read that there was something to the order of $1.2 billion of art for sale at Freeze this weekend. Um, some of that in the master's section, which is older, um, but a lot of that in the contemporary section. Um, so just to get a sense of those parameters. Um, in the last year, we've seen a lot of um, record-breaking sales. I was at the Sotheby's sale in New York this spring where Munch's uh, Scream um, was hammered down for just under $120 million, which makes it the most expensive artwork uh, ever sold at auction. Um, same time, uh, it's been rumored that the Qatari royal family bought um, the Cezanne card player for a quarter of a billion dollars. Um, now that's a private market sale, so we don't actually know for sure whether that took place or not, or who exactly bought it. Um, there were some other people, <coughs> sorry, rumored to have bought it. But in any case, the idea that an artwork is now um, fetching upwards of $250 million um, is pretty impressive, and I'm quite sure that in our lifetime, um, something will, will reach a billion dollars. I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're, we're trending in that direction. Um, in terms of what's being bought, though, um, the market is heavily skewed. Um, this data is, is a little bit outdated. It's from 2009, but it, it certainly speaks to the point. Um, Two-thirds of the market, 62.57%, um, according to, uh, to Art Price, um, in terms of sales at auction, is the painting market. Um, so in terms of the value of work sold, about two-thirds of the market is in paintings. Um, drawings, photography, sculpture represents the majority of the rest of that. And there's a tiny sliver on the top uh, at less than 1%, which is just defined as other. Um, and a lot of the lecture today really is going to be unpacking what's in that other component. Um, uh, uh, so in that sense, I'd, I'd say the market is very skewed. It's, it's very skewed um, at the level, certainly in the secondary or auction market, towards the sale of durable goods, painting, so on and so forth. Um, Time-based media practices, um, which you know, are certainly related to um, some of the immaterial practices we'll be talking about, um, video, film, installation, so on and so forth, you know, hardly register at all at auction. Um, there's not a single video artist um, uh, to that end in the top 50 of, of the sort of 2009 net art sales. Um, and um, when I was putting my book together, I tried to get a sense of how much video art was sold at auction. And um, the best I could do, because it's not really broken out like that in any of the databases, is estimate there was about $4.6 million of video art sold at auction, just to give sort of one metric. Um, that was against $1.2 billion of contemporary art sold at auction in the same year. So there's a giant disconnect, certainly in the auction markets, between um, what I would claim to be the importance of a lot of these practices, but the fact that they've not yet transferred fully over to the secondary market. Um, that being said, um, artists that work in a lot of these um, sort of alternative practices have established a huge degree of um, credibility and prestige within the contemporary art world, within the sort of freeze um, circuit, so to speak. Um, seven of the top 20 artists um, in Kunstkompass's annual ranking. Um, Kunstkompass um, was started in the 70s in, German, uh, in Germany by, by an economist called Willy Bongard, and, and he ascribed uh, numeric um, calculations to different things that an artist would create. So if you had a show at Tate, you'd get 100 points. 
And if you had a show at the Serpentine, you might have 75 points. And if you had a review and freeze, maybe you'd have 25 points. And he compiled all this stuff together um, and to create this artist ranking um, system that he sort of called a reputational ranking system. Um, and it's still something that's um, put together today. And um, although none of these artists uh, work in video, film, installation, feature in the top 50 um, sales at auction, um, seven of the top 20 in 2009 uh, worked actively in film and video. So um, again, as a metric of the sort of relative reputational standing of these guys, um, there's a high degree of prestige value um, in their practices, and we see them regularly exhibited um, at the major galleries, institutions, um, and in all the biennials and fairs nowadays. Um, this is um, a, a piece by Rick Ritchie of Anisia um, from 1991 um, called Untitled Pad Thai, which involved him um, cooking a meal in a gallery, um, and uh, that's all that there was, so that was the artistic gesture. Um, we'll come back to Rick Ritt, um towards the end of the lecture. Um, this is a video um, slash performance by Andrea Frazier um, where she um, commissioned a collector to have sex with her, videotaped it, um, and the video is actually the, the artwork that's sort of the residue of it um, that's exhibited. Uh, Marina Abramovich's um, retrospective at MoMA in 2010 um, I'd say is one of the most important things that's happened in the art world in the last five to ten years insofar as she was um, always a very um, seminal performance artist and really a, a sort of an inspiring figure for artists and curators but never really got much airtime um, publicly in the major institutions. Um, her retrospective um, at MoMA which involved um, the commissioning of new performances um, such as um, uh, this piece where she's sitting um, during all the museum open hours and, and sort of holding totally silent, which I'm sure many of you have um, seen reproduced or maybe saw in person, um, was really, really important in terms of putting performance art um, right up there at the sort of top of, of the sort of institutional pyramid. Um, Tino Segal's subsequent show at, at the Guggenheim um, the same year that spring um, was also really important. Tino's an artist that um, very specifically um, is, is sort of totally in the real, in the live. Um, it's all performance. There's no documentation around it. Um, I think this was a picture taken on an iPhone. He doesn't really officially allow anybody to take documentary pictures of his art. So it's all about being there um, in, in, in the raw, as it were. And um, you know, we've seen more and more performance um, installation type practices um, come very squarely um, into, the, into the sort of highest point of the market in the institution. Um, this is um, uh, uh, documentation from uh, Theaster Gates's um, a piece uh, at Documenta this year at the Huguenot House. Theaster is an artist we worked with really closely at the Armory last year, um, who's an artist. Uh, he's also a, a sort of urban planner, um, and he's very involved socially um, in South Chicago. Um, and he's um, worked with the Huguenot House, which was an abandoned house in, in Documenta in Castle and sort of repurposed it. Um, and then also did a lot of performances um, with his band, the Mississippi Monks. Um, he just opened a show, I'm sure many of you have probably seen, which I didn't see at White Cube um, here, and was doing a variety of performances in London this week. Um, so again, I'd say Theaster is somebody that is very emblematic of where we are today as an artist who makes artworks, but is also incredibly engaged um, on the social side of the art world um, as well. Um, 
In terms of um, how the economics of all this works, um, for the purposes of, of sort of getting through this lecture in 45 odd minutes, um, I'll sort of define it as kind of coming out of um, the conceptual art movement in the 1960s. Um, conceptual art was something that really grew out of the 60s avant-garde. Um, it, um, in many ways, sort of equated art with this idea of um, you know, being part of philosophy. Um, the, that, that art was about its context and its institutions as much as it was about creating um, physical objects per se. Um, and a lot of the practices associated with conceptualism um, were very much against the idea of an author. Um, it was about collaborative relationships um, and against the idea that the, the object in the end was the only part of the process. It was very process oriented. Um, from a market perspective, um, a lot of the artists that were working with conceptualism at the time um, were, I'd say, either ambivalent or outright hostile to market conventions. Um, there was a lot of, um, a lot of Marxist um, and very left-leaning political currents running through a lot of the practices that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, and uh, a lot of conceptualism, given those um, uh, sort of fundamental um, um, sort of uh, prevailing trends, was seen as being immaterial or dematerialized. Um, Lucy Lepard, who was a famous cur uh, critic and curator, um, wrote her uh, well-known essay at the time about um, conceptual art and the dematerialization of the art object. Um, and uh, so you see a lot of that. And there was, of course, uh, a high degree of crossover with minimalist performance um, installation-based practices that really ruptured the idea of how artists work, how their work is displayed, and how that work, in turn, is uh, shared, transmitted, and so on and so forth. Um, Lawrence Wiener, who um, I had the privilege of actually seeing um, in conversation with Ed Ruscha a few weeks ago, um, was certainly one of the, the foremost um, proponents of conceptual art. Um, and his statement of intent from 1969 does a pretty good job um, of summing up a lot of the, the early ambitions of what conceptual art was all about. Um, the artist may construct the piece, the piece may be fabricated, it need not be built, um, each being equal and consistent with the intent of the artist, that decision as to receivership rests with the receiver upon condition of receivership. It's a very wordy way of saying, basically, I'm going to give you an idea. Um, that idea is the artwork, and you as a receiver, as a collector or an institution or a gallery, decides whether or not to make that idea manifest as a physical action. Um, so this is a series of his statements um, from the late 60s. And then this is one that was realized in an institution. So one pint of lacquer poured directly on the floor and allowed to dry was a statement. Um, and then it was actually executed in this exhibition more recently. Um, but the idea is that the artwork could still exist as an idea. Lawrence Wiener is also a poet um, and a writer. So a lot of it resides in the sort of idea of the act. Um, Saul Lewitt um, is a different type of um, conceptual artist um, dealing with a lot of um, the ideas around um, variations on a theme and the idea that um, the artist's job really is to sort of set a system in play and that system can then um, be executed, not dissimilarly to Wiener's idea of, of art um, in a variety of different manifestations. Um, so the drawings of the different um, cubes and grids are all different permutations of this idea that Wiener, or Lewitt rather, as an artist, um, sets in play. Um, this is a permanent installation of his wall drawings um, at Mass Mocha um, in, in Massachusetts, which um, if any of you are visiting 
anywhere on the East Coast in the next 50 years. You should really try to go see. It's pretty incredible. Um, this is um, a statement by Robert Berry from 1969, um, uh, part of his Inert Gas series. And, and to sort of take that idea of the dematerialization of contemporary art to sort of kind of the full tilt, um, he released a variety of gases in the air in the California desert in 1969 uh, that were captured by this statement. So this is neon. Um, from a measured volume uh, to indefinite expansion. So on March 4, 1969, on a hill near a valley in Los Angeles overlooking the Pacific Ocean, one liter of neon was returned to the atmosphere. So the artwork is um, him releasing that gas into the air, and it's then documented with this photograph, which was the stand-in for that action. Um, so there's an immaterial um, or a vent or a sort of intervention in space that's then documented, and what we have um, 50 years on is nothing more than the description of that action and the, and the sort of documentation of it. Um, Seth Siegelaub, um, there's a great book, which you should all read if you're interested in this stuff, written by Alex Albero, um, called Conceptual Art and the Politics of Publicity. And, and he, um, is, uh, he uh, took Benjamin Buchlow's um, job at, at Columbia. He's an art historian and is probably the leading conceptual art um, historian. And his PhD at Northwestern was actually on this dealer, Seth Siegelaub, um, who represented that first generation of conceptual artists in New York. Um, LeWitt, um, Barry, Hubler, Lawrence Wiener, and so on. And um, what he decided at some stage, um, really after failing as a sort of more conventional gallery owner, was that because the idea of conceptual art really was what was most important, um, he didn't actually even need a gallery, and that art could really exist only in the form of advertising. Um, so he um, propagated this idea um, uh, sort of with a number of the artists he worked with. Um, in this case, um, Douglas Huber, Hubler's exhibition um, was manifest purely as this advertisement um, in um, what I believe was an early version of Art Forum. Um, so that one quarter page advertisement um, on, in Art Forum on page eight is one form the documentation of that exhibition. So uh, Siegelau really pushed this idea to the limit and then got sort of so fed up with the politics and economics of the art world that after doing this for a few years, he sort of checked out and moved to Amsterdam and um, has only really resurfaced again. But I saw the, there, did anybody see that exhibition? Was it at Raven's Row? Show of hands. Nobody. There was a show here a few months ago that I saw that was of Siegelau's collection of some curious stuff. So he's kind of this kind of guru figure um, in the conceptual art world. Um, Yves Klein, uh, not in America, but in France, has um, certainly taken um, this idea to an opposite extreme. Um, his um, various performances on acquiring the, the sort of immaterial um, uh, void, as it were, all constituted him collaborating with a collector who would pay a certain amount of money to receive um, a gold uh, coin, uh, uh, in which case they were requiring the void, and then he would throw the gold um, into the, the scent. Um, so that was um, sort of what happened. There he is throwing away uh, Mr. Blankfort's gold into the scent, um, and Mr. Blankfort um, has in turn acquired the void that Klein sold him. So it's this idea of this kind of performance, this destructive performance, and um, 
the only way that Klein um, said that you could actually acquire the void was by throwing the gold away. So you had to, um, you had to consummate that transaction through the destruction um, of, of the money. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, sort of theorizing around the importance of conceptual art put forward by critics like Lippard, by dealers like Siegelau, while at the same time, um, conceptual art, despite its um, uh, sort of variously antagonistic or ambivalent relationship with the market, um, was really very heavily supported, or I wouldn't say heavily, but was certainly supported by the market from its outset. Um, so in retrospect, we realize that actually um, it wasn't maybe as opposed to the market um, as is often commonly thought. Um, there were devoted collectors. Um, works were produced by Siegelaub and by these artists in limited edition quantities, which is very common practice in the market nowadays. Documentation, whether it was the photographs um, or video recordings, um, were made to record the event and in turn have entered museum collections um, and some private collections. Um, and there was a whole scope of legal um, work that was done around this to define what collectors would acquire. Um, a lot of which is to say that although these things might have been immaterial or variously material in theory, um, they were often highly material in the market. So in terms of what collectors actually acquired, what institutions purchased, um, one finds that uh, a lot of these things actually have very material um, underpinnings, whether um, they exist as photography or sculpture or different types of uh, associated goods in ephemera. Um, Solowitz wall drawings, to take a pretty specific example, um, come with highly detailed and refined certificates of authenticity. Um, and he's incredibly specific about how and under what circumstances these wall drawings, which are the, the material realization of his idea that he's setting in motion with his systems, um, are manifest. Um, and even though LeWitt has now passed away, the LeWitt estate um, you know, is really rigorous about um, creating these um, to an incredibly specific extent. Um, Eve Klein, for his part, um, issued these really beautiful um, sort of IKB um, uh, sort of certificates, which is kind of like his personal artistic checkbook. Um, and when you see, if you go to the Pompidou in Paris, they have a lot of these um, in these vitrines um, as part of the, the Klein estate that's on view. Um, Siegelaub, um, for his part, as a dealer for a lot of the first generation um, conceptualists, um, worked with a, a lawyer called Robert Prijansky to, to create the artist reserved rights uh, transfer and sale agreement, which um, both framed and delimited how and under what circumstances one could acquire a piece of conceptual art, but also was very politically inspired in that he was um, sort of strict in mandating that should any of the works eventually be resold, um, the artists themselves were to benefit um, through some percentage of that resale. Um, here in the UK, there's now a lot of talk about the passing of the Duat de Suite or the artist resale right, which had its um, sort of roots in, in sort of early 20th century, but got a lot of play in the 70s as well around some of these aspects of conceptual art. Um, Barry, for his part, um, this is the, the Inert Gas series, um, which he and Siegelaub claimed at the time only existed as this action and this documentation, which was never a stand-in for the art object, um, is nevertheless sold and traded in the market today very much as, as photographic documentation. Um, so this is um, a slide taken from Yvonne Lambert's website 
Um, Yvonne Lambert represents the estate of Robert Berry as an important gallery, and his work is basically sold, framed with the original statement of intent and, um, and some documentation um, form of those uh, photographs. Um, more recently, and, and this is sort of a, you know, we can, if you have questions about what happened between 1960 and the 90s, uh, we can come back to that. But there's been a real upsurge in interest around, um, around conceptual art and around this earlier generation of, of avant-gardists. A lot of this has to do with Nicolas Bourdieu's writing on relational aesthetics, um, which um, was, uh, just by a show of hands, how many are, I can go into this in lesser or more detail as sort of who knows any of this stuff? About a third, okay. Um, Borio is a French uh, curator, critic. He spent some time here um, at the Tate. Um, and in 1998, published this collection of essays called Relational Aesthetics, where he was um, looking and trying to frame a lot of practices that he saw happening in France during the 90s um, by artists like Tiravanesia, who we'll come back to. And his argument is that um, artists nowadays are not just producing um, sculptures or painting, um, but they're creating experiences um, or encounters with audiences or actions or schematics that are sort of set and trained by the, the realization of an exhibition. Um, and uh, a lot of his writing on art had to do with other ideas that he sort of propagated from uh, um, the uh, sort of literature on, on the wait list or kind of knowledge economy. And um, you know, again, it was very left-wing and politically inspired, but he's um, really reinvigorated discussions, somewhat controversially, according to some critics, um, around a lot of these ideas that have their uh, roots in, in the 1960s avant-garde. Um, as a result, we've seen a, a lot of installation, performance, site-specific, sort of you name it, um, types of works um, being propagated um, since the 90s, certainly a lot more than, than were happening in the 80s. Um, and at you know, the turn of the decade. Um, for future reading on any of this, you should certainly read anything by Andrea Frazier, um, who's herself been um, engaged in this as an artist, but also as a critic. Um, Miwan Kwon has written a really important book on site-specific work. Um, she's an art historian um, at Stanford and writes quite regularly for Art Forum and other types of publications. Um, in terms of the trends that we can detect uh, between sort of the, the current generation of artists working in these practices um, from their earlier uh, pre predecessors in conceptualist work. Um, you know, we see a lot of um, work being anchored to photography, documentation. We see a lot of contracts being issued. Um, we see a lot of more challenging, performative, or time-based work being documented. Um, and ultimately, what we see is um, this idea that comes to the surface, and I think is the best way to kind of frame our understanding of what one is buying and what's actually trading as currency, um, is that one is creating, or artists more and more, creating systems um, that um, can take various extensions based on what one, um, how they're defined. So a collector of um, some of these types of things, and we'll go from here into a bunch of examples, um, is really buying into a sort of system or a sort of framework that an artist is setting in play that can have any number of different extensions to it. Um, and I think that's a really important way of um, understanding and thinking about what one is buying um, when you're looking at these types of practices. Um, and you know, I'd encourage you to sort of, as you're walking through or wondering, well, what exactly is it? You know, I think the, the idea of a system rather than a sort of standalone art object or one thing or another um, is an important way of 
um, of thinking of these things. Um, I gave this slide as an example in the beginning of the lecture. This is, um, again, Tiravanaj's untitled Pad Thai. Um, he did this at a moment in the New York gallery world. The, the, the art market of the 80s, which um, you know, had a lot to do with really expensive Japanese, um, or Japanese collectors, investors buying impressionist paintings, and had a lot to do with Sandro Kia and Julian Schnabel and big sort of bold painting. Um, when that bubble burst in the early 90s, um, there was sort of this crisis moment um, in the market. And Tiravanaja gained notoriety for really just trying to bring people together in gallery spaces. And it was um, a, a, a sort of performative throwback to early, or earlier 20th century avant-gardist um, strategies. And uh, in this case, um, his um, first exhibition at um, 303 Gallery involved nothing more than him cooking for people. Um, people engaged, there was kind of this idea of some communal activity, and then that was it. And what was on view for the remainder of the exhibition was just the detritus from that, um, sort of from that performance, as it were. Um, he's gone on to do this in a variety of different ways. Um, in 1993, he did a piece in the Venice Biennial called Untitled 1271, which was a reference to the year that um, uh, Christopher, not Christopher Columbus, um, somebody else brought um, noodles from Southeast Asia to Europe for the first time. Who was it? Yeah, Marco Polo. That's what happens with a bit of jet lag and a lot of coffee. Um, so Marco Polo brought, um, was the first person to bring um, noodles to Italy, basically. So it was a funny play on that. What Tiravanaja did at the Biennial is he paddled around in a canoe um, through the canals in Venice, serving cup of noodles out of um, the pots that you see there. He's uh, a Thai artist. It was a play on this kind of Asia coming to the West and then you know, going back to Asia in the form of sort of commoditized, mass-produced um, ramen noodles. Um, what's seen here is um, the, the sort of the after effect of what happens to that performance, as it were, in a gallery context, and in this case, one has the canoe with a bunch of pots and propane tanks um, on display statically in an exhibition, um, which is then bought by a private collector, a guy called Andy Stillpass, who's um, been a really big supporter of Chiravanaj and some of these other guys um, in Ohio, and it's now hanging on his tree in his backyard. And to inaugurate the purchase, he held a big party with Rick Ritt and a bunch of artists um, and sort of celebrated that around a cup of noodles celebration. And, um, the sort of residue is just hanging um, in the tree. Um, so to give an idea of kind of how the market for these things works, there's the action and then the sort of object which is taken in um, to a collection. Um, uh, Anton Kern, who's uh, an important dealer in New York, um, who's showing here at Freeze this past week, um, was a close friend of Rick Ritz and commissioned um, uh, or didn't commission, bought another variation on the theme in the early 90s as well, um, he held a party at his house, and this is what he now has. It's basically the sort of residue of that performance. And it has, in turn, been loaned, which is kind of abstract to think of, but loaned to different museums subsequently and reinstated as a, as a, as a sort of performance piece. Um, but again, there's the action and then the sort of residue um, of these um, uh, you know, cooking containers. Um, at the Vienna Secession in, um, I believe, I'm forgetting the year, but after 2000, before 2012, um, Chiravanaja had a big um, exhibition 
And uh, in this instance, he recreated the Schindler House in LA, which is a famous modernist house, um, out of this sort of titanium chrome structure, and activated it through the course of that week, um, with a, or not the course of the week, the course of the exhibition with film screenings, massages, um, cooking sessions. The museum was actually open 24-7 for a three-month run while it was going on. And people interacted, and it really became a sort of thriving community center in Vienna. Um, the um, piece has subsequently been purchased by the Guggenheim. Um, so the Guggenheim acquired basically the architecture, but they also acquired this kind of agreement with Rickrit about how it would be programmed. Um, the Guggenheim is under very strict um, uh, restrictions, as I understand it, to never just display it statically as architecture, but it has to be activated. So to inaugurate their purchase um, several years later, they held this kind of weekend in New York that was programmed with um, a lot of music, film screenings, all this stuff that the Guggenheim curators and Rick Ritt concocted for them uh, to inaugurate the purchase. So again, it's, it's an architecture, it's physical, but it has to be activated and, and it's um, sort of done in collaboration with the artist. Um, all that being said, Rick Ritt um, and others that we'll look at do put out um, a large amount of product into the world. Um, this is one of his cooking corners um, that was being sold at Freeze several years ago, um, you know, that have a highly material and highly commodifiable component to them. You know, in, in a sense, one could say it's sort of like the merchandise um, that offsets the costs of producing something much more ambitious, um, like the, Sch the, the Schindler House construction. Um, this is an installation that was at Hauser & Wirth several years ago, maybe in 2005, by Jason Rhodes. Um, before he died, um, this is, um, uh, uh, what the hell is it called? I'm forgetting what it's called, but it was very complicated, very sort of emphatic name, um, and comprised basically hundreds of these small sculptures. Um, and, uh, and then it also incorporated this environment um, that he held in LA where a lot of this was being produced that was an environment of these sculptures and then he also had all these performances going on. Um, I remember when I was here as a student that while this exhibition was going on at Hauser & Wirth on Piccadilly, the sculptures were at the same time being abstracted and sold in the booth at Hauser & Wirth at Freeze. So this idea that something's coming together as installation but at the same time sort of being plucked apart um, and sold is very much um, about how it works and a lot of it is sort of sold around the kind of cult of the artist. If you read a lot of the press releases that were put out um, they're impressively over the top. Um, this is another alternative example of uh, a, a, an interesting group of artists um, called E-Team in New York, who I've become quite friendly with over the years. They're quite interesting, and they um, use the internet to purchase, um, I think it was a 100-acre plot of land um, in the middle of nowhere in Utah. And they used, uh, they bought it for like a few hundred dollars, and then they used the site um, to create this international airport. Um, which was kind of this abstract performance. Um, and uh, this is some documentation from it. Um, and again, it has a lot of reference to earlier avant-garde's, um, some aspect of kind of commodity critique and this whole kind of looking at the, the art world nowadays as this kind of peripatetic um, kind of global mass of people traveling from here to there. And they thought it would be kind of amusing and prescient to do something in the middle of nowhere in Utah to create this dysfunctional airport. Um, to actually subsidize the project, they got a grant from Martin General, which is a not-for-profit in New York, and um, sold um, 
addition photographs, and this is the, the addition that they sold um, to subsidize the cost of it. So you have this performative act that very few people can come to that's then documented and subsidized for the sale um, of a limited edition photograph. Um, several years ago, um, Pierre Wieg and, and Philippe Pereno, who are two important French artists, um, purchased the rights to uh, this manga figure called Anne Lee. Um, and uh, what they did is, is they acquired her rights and then they distributed her rights, uh, the image, uh, to a dozen or so artists who they allowed to then create artworks based on this image. Um, does that make sense to you guys? Um, so in, in Japanese manga culture, you actually have sort of comic book people and then these other guys that just generate characters. So they bought this character, um, distributed her image to a few artists who then made um, all different types of artworks. This is a still from a video. Um, that's an installation. There was this other piece with this robot um, to just sort of culminate it all. They had this giant firework explosion. Um, but what's interesting about the project is um, that all these artists worked independently to create their own um, body of work related to it. And at the end of the project, um, the artists work with a lawyer to um, basically kill off the manga figure and, and ensure that nobody could ever use her image again. So they sort of gave the image back um, her own rights, as it were, and that drew the project to an end. Um, and, the, and the works have been acquired individually, but they were also acquired by um, one or two major private collectors. I think the Dela Cruz's in Miami bought each artwork that was created in conjunction with it and have subsequently donated it, I believe, to Tate Modern. Um, so now it's in Tate's collection as well as in the Van Abbey Museum um, in the Netherlands. Um, and it's an interesting um, collaborative process um, that has a lot to do with these questions of intellectual property um, and how different types of artworks that exist and don't exist physically can come together. Um, this is um, a video by a guy called Christian Yankowski who works with the Listen Gallery here. And, um, the video is an early single-channel video. Um, video as a medium, um, something that I was very interested in when I was doing my research. Um, and not unlike sort of first-generation conceptual or performance art, video is often very challenging to kind of the idea of the market because it's inherently reproducible and can be transmitted uh, originally in broadcast TV nowadays more and more on the Internet. Um, so there's been a variety of strategies um, that have been set in place to sell video art. Um, this is one that's particularly indicative. So um, Jankowski's video, which is a short loop, um, is sold um, for 400 euros and in addition of 200, um, you sort of acquire this VHS version. Um, but if you want the premium exhibition version, um, you have to pay 10,000 euros and it's sold in an addition of six. Um, with that exhibition version, you also acquire the rights to present it publicly. Um, so if you want to donate it to the Tate and have, like, donated by Noah Horowitz, you have to pay 10,000 euros. If you just want to have some people over to dinner and watch, um, watch the video loop, you can buy the 400 euro version. Um, there were also a number of photographic stills produced with it. So a lot of what I'd say, um, thinking about um, video art or conceptual art more generally that's happened in the marketplace, is this kind of stratification and, and segmentation of the market. And that's how a lot of the art market works nowadays. So you have some things that reach one audience and other things at a premium that reach another audience. Um, and they come with different rights uh, and representations. Um, Matthew Barney, um, certainly one of the most famous examples of, of sort of 
um, an artist who works a lot in performance, film, and video, um, who's um, you know really reached the height of, of the institutional market. This is um, a still from his exhibition or his retrospective um, at the Guggenheim in 2003. Barney famously created these five Cremaster films between 2000, 1994 and 2003. And each of the films um, has this whole universe of objects and photographs and all these things associated with it. Um, and um, although they're films and videos, they're ultimately sold like this, um, which is to say in a vitrine um, and uh, with a DVD uh, or a laser disc originally um, associated with it. So the sort of genius of Matthew Barney and his dealer, Barbara Gladstone, was to, to, to take something that's immaterial, to take a film or a video that ranged between 45 minutes and three hours, and create something material with it that was sculptural, such that when um, a private collector like the Kramlicks in San Francisco actually acquire it, they can put it in their living room, and it looks like contemporary art. And you can also then take it out and play it. Um, and you have an exhibition copy that the artist also grants you that you can lend to San Francisco, you know, to the SF MoMA or to the Tate and get your name with it. So it's um, an object, I'd say, that functions on a variety of levels. Um, but it's very important to understand that prior to Barney and, and some other more recent artists, there was never a greatly sophisticated understanding of how to parcel out those different markets. And I'd say one of the really super clever things that they did was understand how to play with that and create these um, in conjunction with that. Um, one version of this um, sold for about a half a million dollars a few years ago at auction, which makes it one of the most expensive pieces of video art, um, if you even want to call that video art, um, ever sold. Um, Andrea Fraser, we talked about her before, so she commissioned um, this piece called Untitled in 2003 where she commissioned this collector to have sex with her. Um, that piece, um, it lasts for 50 minutes and it's you know an explicit X-rated video that you can watch and it's filmed from a static camera. Um, if you go into a gallery and see it, um, it's presented on a, on a pedestal as a TV and that's what you're watching. So part of it is about um, you know, this awkwardness of standing in front of other people and watching this act. Um, part of it is a, a kind of critical or uncritical commentary on the prostitution of the artist and this idea of commodity and the relationships that artists have with their collectors. Um, at a pragmatic level, it has a lot of constraints on what you acquire when you acquire it. Um, this is um, the terms of sale that's issued um, to prospective buyers of the piece from Friedrich Petzl, who's a, a New York gallerist who's worked with Andrea. Um, and it has a lot of limitations on the, reproduce, uh, the reproduction of it, how you're allowed to show it, so on and so forth. So again, it's, a, it's an action that takes a physical uh, manifestation as a video um, that has some extension um, with these stills and then has this contract uh, delimiting it. Uh, Abramovich is, again, an artist that I talked about a moment ago. Um, who's been doing um, was, uh, sort of like really the sort of grandmother of, of performance art has done a variety of different things, uh, many quite radical since the late 60s. Um, outside of the immediate uh, the immediacy of those performances, most of the work that's ever entered the market has really entered in as nothing but um, uh, photographic documentation of it. So. This is one room that was at MoMA during her retrospective in 2010. It's not a great shot, um, but those are um, you know, a half dozen or so 
um, photographs documenting earlier performances. Um, but the genius of the MoMA show was both um, to commission a new work like um, The Artist is Present, the piece where she's sitting down um, and sort of motionless staring at somebody else across from her, but it was also to reproduce um, earlier performances. Um, so this idea, um, which is really important actually, is that rather than just, for example, um, presenting this earlier performance relation in time um, as a room of photographic documents, but actually um, hiring actors to reenact that same performance 30, 40 years on is really important from an institutional perspective. And MoMA did a really brilliant job in sort of enlivening performance art and make it less sort of a static rele uh, relic and, and something more that's active and lived. Um, we've seen that in a variety of ways. Imponderabilia is another earlier performance that she did um, where you have these two nude, a male nude and a female nude um, in a doorway. And if you want to partake in it, you have to walk between them, which is obviously a little bit awkward. Um, there's always the gropers. Um, somebody was arrested at MoMA, I think. Um, so and on the left is uh, the piece from the late 60s. On the right is a, is a shot from, from MoMA. And then at Art Basel last year, Sean Kelly, um, who represents Marina in New York, um, had uh, these two people, or a variety of different people that kind of each did shifts um, at the entrance to his booth. Um, so to come from uh, something, you know, really in an underground institution in the late 60s to front and center in Art Basel, the world's biggest art fair in 2012, is an extraordinary journey and I think indicative of, you know, the relevance and the importance of somebody like Marina to, to the dialogue and to discussions today. Um, I've talked to Sean about his decision to do this piece there and I think for him it was really about um, you know, giving Marina a sort of the institutional credibility and the kind of um, visibility out there. It wasn't really about selling the piece, but really making it a talking point. Um, and of course, it was an incredibly savvy PR um, uh, take as well. It got picked up um, all over the place and was a real talking point of the fair. Um, Tino Segal, um, uh, again, as an artist um, that I mentioned previously, certainly one of the most um, interesting artists working around these things today. Tino's practice um, uh, involves um, nothing more than, than basically setting a script for actors to act something out and then people to kind of come in contact with it. So his piece, The Kiss, involves these two people basically kissing and rolling over each other um, and putting that in a museum context. It's sort of rife with, you know, The, the Kiss as a pretty loaded thing art historically. Um, and it has a lot of that. And the idea is that each manifestation of it, because it's a live action, is different. Um, what's interesting um, about Tino's work is that um, he, uh, nothing is ever written about. There is not a, a written, articulated contract. If you wanted to acquire the kiss, you would have to um, pay a lot of money um, to Marion Goodman. Um, and um, basically have a notary present um, who uh, in the presence of the artist, um, will the artist rather will dictate the terms of the piece verbally um, to you. You then acquire that, and any time you want to reinstall it, you then have to sort of play the telephone game and dictate on um, what the constraints are and the parameters are to a set of actors, oftentimes in conjunction with the artist. Um, there's a lot of questioning, of course, as to what happens to something like this when the artist dies. Um, and in that way, um, you know, Tino, I'd say the interesting part of his work is playing on this idea of 
um, the fact that um, the artwork is always in a state of evolution. Um, it's never going to be the same thing. You know, the kiss in 100 years could take on a slightly different um, shape than it can um, or that it would when, he, when the artist is alive to delimit what the constraints of that are. Um, there are also market um, questions. Some of his work has um, been uh, offered up for sale at auction. Um, I've talked to some art market lawyers about this, and actually major auction houses, at least in America, are not allowed to sell an artwork that doesn't have a certificate of authenticity or some written documentation. So actually, <laughs> you can't actually sell it as of right now in a, in a public auction house in New York, or in America for that matter. Um, so that's kind of an interesting way that the artist is engaging um, with the market um, in a very real way. Um, the last example I'll give in this respect um, is, is a younger artist called Ryan Tricartan, um, who had a big show. This is a piece of his from MoMA, or from PS1, rather, last year. Ryan is um, a younger um, video uh, artist who does these totally crazy um, videos and then also creates these environments to see them. So this was one of the environments that was created for his show at PS1. Um, what's interesting about Ryan is that there's a lot of similarities between his work and somebody like Matthew Barney in terms of how it's sold and the fact that you're buying basically this reified, unique um, installation environment, which is here, that really is probably more of an institutional context. Um, but at the same time, all of the work that he does, he puts on Vimeo and YouTube. So you could actually see all of his work, his entire body of work, for free. You can download and watch online. So he's somebody, um, and, and Matthew Barney, for his part, was always very hesitant and much more protective about the, the sort of circulation distribution of his work online um, than Ryan was. But Ryan is, I think, indicative of a younger generation of artists who see the internet um, as, as really a tool um, rather than as something to be afraid of. And I think we'll see more and more of that moving forward um, with artists um, uh, in the years to come. Um, so to sort of wrap things up um, and, and open this ultimately up to discussion, you know, we are seeing um, a rising presence of uh, these types of loosely immaterial artists in both commercial and non-commercial contexts. Um, and we're also noticing the fact that artists um, nowadays, I'd say, certainly as opposed to the sort of early um, conceptual heyday in the 60s, you know, are less politically uncomfortable with that fact. Um, they work more fluidly across the public and private sectors. Um, and, you know, I think more and more artists see um, all these things as, um, you know, different types of opportunities, whether it's a sales opportunity or a PR positioning opportunity. Uh, or an opportunity simply to exist uh, or um, interact with a different type of audience. Um, for um, my part at the Armory, I think last year's Armory show um, was something that had a lot of performance sort of running through it. Um, the, the piece that you can see, the neon piece, it says Scandinavian Pain, uh, was a neon um, work by uh, an Icelandic um, performance artist called Ragnar. Um, Kjartansson. Ragnar um, represented Iceland in the 2009 Venice Biennial. Um, he's a brilliant artist. And Scandinavian Pain was actually a performance that he um, undertook um, in this barn in the, in the sticks of Norway um, several years ago. Um, and it has this sort of second life as this neon piece, which is a referent to the earlier performance. Uh, there was a smaller version of this that I saw being sold by Loring Augustine um, at Art Basel in June. So it has that duality. Um, uh, 
Ragnar was also talking to Bjork um, at the Armory show. Um, Fiaster, who I mentioned before, who's um, at White Cube now and was in Documenta, um, we have a, a commissioned artist at the Armory each year, and Fiaster was our commissioned artist last year, and he took it as an opportunity to actually use the fair as a medium, and, and he went to South Chicago, um, got a lot of these school tables, benches, chairs, and chalkboards, and, and held court, as he called it, at the Armory over the course of the fair last year. So he was just sitting there, um, engaging with people, discussing different things, um, answering questions, and then the residue of that, so those chalkboards, were ultimately sold by his gallery. Um, so it's this kind of interesting slippage between performance, um, uh, documentation, um, you know, some people might have problems with the fact that he's doing these performances and selling aspects of them. Others might think it's interesting. I think Fiaster is somebody that likes that conversation and likes that discussion and, you know, is actively interested in that. Um, for next year, um, we um, uh, have announced that Liz Magic Laser, who's a young performance artist um, in New York, will be our commissioned artist for the 2013 fair. Um, Liz is somebody that has a, a solo show at the Kunsthalle in Malmo right now and is you know, sort of indicative of the younger generation um, of, of performance artists. And um, you know, we're very excited about working with her. Um, this is a political performance where she's sort of hired these actors um, uh, to act out different political dialogues um, at the last performa um, in New York. Um, so in terms of um, what this all sort of means, um, we're seeing a market growing for these types of practices. Uh, more and more nowadays, but there's still a huge gap between um, what even a Matthew Barney um, Cremaster film might sell for and what a Jeff Koons shiny um, you know, sculpture or um, Popeye figure might sell for. Um, a lot of artists uh, working in performance, installation, uh, so on and so forth, you know, still are producing works with, you know, I think, largely a break-even mentality, so it's kind of like Let's create it and figure out the best way to sort of make back those costs. The really successful ones figure out how to do that um, by leaps and bounds. Um, it's a very institutional collecting base for a lot of this stuff. So, um, you know, the Tate, MoMA, the major institutions are still the places where a lot of this art ends up permanently. But more and more, we're seeing more and more private collectors uh, engage with these types of practices and also engage with them in an interesting ways. It's not just about buying um, a small photographic um, documentation. Um, a lot of the, the economics of it um, are about creating these artificial constraints and about using an artist idea or using this gesture and, and creating a parameter around it such that um, it can be framed relevantly in a commercial context, um, creating limited editions uh, rather than unlimited editions of things. Um, to create a certain market um, uh, savvy around it. Um, and as this happens, I'd say that questions of ownership in terms of what you actually acquire when you acquire these things will be coming more and more key as the values of the artworks themselves rise. Um, so issues around how to control the circulation and distribution of these types of things um, and understanding really the legal and the intellectual property manifestations of what that system is that you've now acquired um, are things that will get more and more significant moving forward. So if any of you want to become art lawyers, I think now is probably a good time. Um, 
And I'd wrap this all up by, by looking at an example that really doesn't have a huge amount on the surface to do with one of these, or any of these things, but I think actually is really um, indicative. Um, Hearst's physical impossibility in, of the death uh, in the mind of someone living, his, his famous shark, um, is, it offers a great example. The shark um, was created in 1991 in this giant um, vitrine. And as many of you are probably aware, the shark started deteriorating and um, basically corroding. Um, and when it was sold, uh, when White Cube sold it to Steve Cohen, he's the big hedge fund collector in New York, uh, in 2005, I believe, um, Cohen commissioned Hearst to recreate uh, the sculpture with a new shark uh, in an updated vitrine. Um, and to the extent that one thinks of art as having a finite sense, you could ask certain questions around how that's even legal, um, you know, to do something, you know, isn't the original shark in tank in 1991 thing? And, um, you know, I think to the extent that this has actually happened and that it was refabricated, um, you know, gets right to the heart of uh, the fact that even with a physical sculpture like the shark in tank, uh, really what Hearst has created is an idea. And it's the idea that will transfer historically after he's dead and as he's still alive right now. And what Steve Cohen has purchased is basically the right to a shark in a sort of three cubic vitrine uh, with that kind of bluish water um, and bearing the signature of Damien Hurst and that thing. And that's basically what's been acquired. So the collector has really purchased, um, he's, something purchased he's purchased something that's essentially intellectual property that takes its form as a physical sculpture. And um, to the extent that that's the case, I hope that that makes some of the other stuff um, make a little bit more sense. Um, so with that, and that <laughs> little picture, um, I'll, I'll take questions and, and thank you for listening to me. So like, you need a Damien Hurst picture in England. So if anybody has questions, the lovely people in the red shirts can give you a microphone. Thank you. I started off. I'm a postgraduate artist, painter and sculptor. One of the things that concerns me is the complete lack of uh, women artists in, in the public way. And I am concerned, first of all, I want to see what other women do, because we learn from our ancestors. And secondly, Is that on, by the way? Can you guys? What? Is the microphone on? I can hear what you're saying. I just didn't know if everybody else could. Sorry. Um, we just don't see the women artists because the whole of the art world is run by the chaps. And I think this is a great disaster. And to take an example of what could have been extremely interesting was that we recently had a big exhibition of uh, Lucian Freud's work, um, as I'm sure many people saw it here. Why didn't we have uh, Jenny Savile at the same time because it would have actually created a, a, a conversation, serious conversation piece about art um, by two different artists. 
But the fact is, we don't have, and in the whole of your talk, which is not blaming you, it's because of the state of the art market, uh, we don't have anything to do with the women. And the women artists don't appear in the Tate, they don't, um, and they don't appear in other galleries, or very rarely, so rarely that nobody takes any notice of them. What are we to do about this? <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's a problem. <laughs> Um, you know, and I think somebody like Marina Abramovich has become a really, I mean, incredibly powerful force within the art world that I think can hopefully set some of this straight. Um, you're shaking your head. Maybe you don't well, think so. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, come to the Armory in March. Liz Magic Laser is definitely very cool. Um, just to add to that point, there was um, a survey by East Force that came out about Freeze, saying that just over 20% of the work sold at Freeze was by female artists, but that's not my question. Um, I just wondered, in the Damien Hirst picture at the end, what interested me was the picture of the technician. And yeah. um, I'm just wondering, like, how does this economic model actually interact with a larger um, economy? Um, like what, what aspect of it? Well, it's very individualized and it's very kind of a maximum profit-based eco economy. And um, I mean, I'd say that my interest in the example, I really, you know, um, am using it kind of just to shine light on the framework about what the object is or what the artwork is. It's less my interest in the fact that you know, Hearst is such an anomaly that it doesn't really do one well to read too much into his success or what he does in terms of reading broader currents in the market. But in terms of thinking about where we are today as an art market um, and some of the constraints that some of the most successful artists have put in play, um, you know, I think some aspects of what he does are, are insightful at that level. But um, as to uh, if you have something more specific, I'm not. Totally. No, it's, it's not really about Hearst, it's about yeah. um, whether, this, whether this model, I mean it's interesting what you've said, and, um, but how, I'm interested in how it impacts on, on the wider economy, as in it's a very aspirational economy, it's about aspirational culture like you said about those uh, people who brought the, the kind of airfield space, Right. Um, and actually it's the kind of, it's just creating a massive kind of gap in terms of, say, the pay of the people who work at an art fair right. on the sort of service level and this kind of, you know, what's, what's, what's it all about kind of thing? That's a know. very big question for a Monday night. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think if you're asking about whether these things are sustainable or kind of the big picture, like what does it all mean question, um, you know, I think that this stuff has always kind of happened. I mean, there's nothing that entirely new about the current dynamic, except the absolute amount of people engaged with it and the absolute figures of the amount of money involved with it. Um, but I think all cultures dating back, certainly to the Renaissance, if not you know, well before that, have had totally outsized um, relationships between the patron and the sort of artist and, and the broader public that's engaging with things. What we're seeing nowadays is more a professionalized model of doing that um, to the extent that there's you know, more of a sort of framework within which one can work 
and you know a lot more opportunities for producing and, and you know sort of playing um, the game as it were. Um, and certainly, uh, one of the challenges is to kind of and I think what Freeze does quite well over here is it kind of at least creates some kind of a dialogue or interplay between you know the, the commercial fair and, and kind of a water wider public engagement. Um, you know, with their not-for-profits, and I know they did those sculptural stuff with the Olympiad, and you know that's something that um, you know is, is more and more one is seeing commercial institutions undertake. Um, but you know, at, at a broader level, I and mean, I think it's it's something that's always kind of gone on. A lot of hands all of a sudden. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm going to pick you from now on. Oh. So, um, can I okay. Yeah. Um, my question for you is uh, basically what do you think the impact of things like Kickstarter or Postbowl in like Australia, how do you think that's going to like the art market? Um, I'm going to feign ignorance, but if you could, I have no idea what is Kickstarter? Like crowdsourcing. Oh, right. Um, like crowdsourcing funding of things. Uh, I mean, I think it can be really important at the grassroots level, but you know, the art market is a funny market in that um, you know, power or sort of credibility is all about kind of exclusivity. And I think that as the you go up the sort of value tree, um, you know, I'm not sure how greatly that will change things. But what it will do is create a wider environment of what art is and allow more people to basically sustain their careers at some level within that um, infrastructure, um, hopefully. Um, you know, we see a lot of that with uh, a lot of what's going on online nowadays with a lot of these online art startups. Um, it's really important to understand what part of the market they're targeting. When we created VIP Art Fair, it was really you know, it was using the internet to power the art market, but it was really a very particular segment of the art market. A lot of businesses nowadays, and I think there's a huge market for it, will be speaking more to that kind of lower level um, art market, um, you know, selling goods of sort of anywhere from a few dozen to a few thousand dollars online and giving a lot of those artists a platform. I think clever businesses that do that well you know, that there will be a real place for that that will be going online in the coming years. But that is different than, you know, Hauser and Worth trying to sell a Louise Bourgeois sculpture on the internet. Um, so we'll see more segmentation, I think, in that moving forward. Um, um, just following up from the comment about kind of the hierarchies of all of this, I wonder if you think, because it strikes me that with people like Rirkrit Tirvanesia, for instance, his whole initial thing was to get people who had never been into galleries into New York galleries. Not the whole thing, but that was certainly a part of it, was to open those boundaries. And people like Jeremy Deller taking the bombed out car around the US. And obviously, as you've been saying, there's a need to finance that. But it does mean that these things are, no, are kind of being taken out of their original context or those walls are collapsing a bit. And so I wonder if you actually see these kinds of works as, um, I don't know, maybe in some way blurring those hierarchies yeah, or I, not. I, I think that they, um, you know, they do, but they always, you know, to, to fund them and finance them, you need to get back to the fundamental question of like how the art market works as an economic system. And, 
Um, you know, there's only so far one can go. I mean, art is never going to be like music or film, which is distributed to millions of people who are each paying a little bit of money to finance it. And because of that division, I don't think it will ever overturn the fundamental things. Like, you know, I've talked to Isaac Julian quite a bit, who's a you know important um, you know contemporary artist here in England, and you know he was really an, an avant-garde filmmaker, and he did a lot of he had his own film production company in the late '80s and early '90s, and he came into the kind of fine art market because basically there wasn't much of a funding structure around alternative film. Um, there was very limited public subsidy, and there wasn't any real commercial support for it. And he then started creating these really elaborate and quite you know, beautiful film and video installations and found a different avenue in the contemporary art world where he could basically do what he want, um, do something that people hadn't really done before, and also find a, a, a way of, of facilitating that economically through sales of limited edition films and um, photographs and all these other associated elements. So I don't think that any of these things will ever really overturn it. But what I think we'll see in the coming years is more artists and, and galleries and their supporters understanding how that system works and, and doing more creative things with it. Um, there's a woman up there in the back. Hello. Um, I was just wondering what you thought about the freeze this year because a lot of art fair uh, that specialize in antiques or rather old art have opened their doors to modern and contemporary art in the past decade or so and this time a contemporary art fair has opened its door to medieval art, old master paintings, etc. So what, can, what does this say about the state of the contemporary art in London, for example? Um, I mean, that's also a pretty grand question. <laughs> I think that, you know, I, I think Fries have framed it quite correctly in saying essentially that, you know, they, that one of the reasons they did it was because a lot of artists look to older artists and that there is that historical sort of push and pull. Um, I think that's correct, um, you know, but I think there's that dialogue and I think from a commercial standpoint, you know, there's a pretty different market for old master painting um, than there is to, you know, just out of the studio contemporary art. And if you know Freeze is successful in at least some level of bringing those two worlds together, um, you know, then that's a pretty interesting thing. Um, you know, but for our part at the Armory, we have a modern section. You know, that goes really works from like late 19th century through mid-century work, um, and and we've certainly noticed a segmented collecting base in New York as well. That people that come for the modern section aren't necessarily taking a look or, or buying too actively in the contemporary. But it's important all the same to have those side by side. Um, I'm sure we'll see more and more of that um, moving forward. You know, that being said, a lot of what was at Freeze was hardly historic uh, material. I mean, a lot of it was, um, you know, Andrew Kreps did a booth of Robert Overview uh, paintings from the 70s. I mean, it's, it's important material, but it has nothing to do with old master painting either. So, you know, dealing with that schism is something that, you know, I'd say any art fair that's trying to combine those two um, we'll have to figure out. I'm also fairly aware of the fact that at TAFAF, for example, which is like the market standard kind of antiquities fair, that a lot of the kind of contemporary dealers that have gone to Maastricht have had a difficult time getting anywhere. I mean, they like the feeling of being in Maastricht for 10 days, um, but commercially it's not necessarily been the most successful experiment. And if you just look at the, the lists and the turnover of the contemporary galleries, 
who have gone there, and that's like you know the market standard for that type of work. Um, you know, there's a high rate of turnover, so it's a difficult thing to get right. Um, but it's certainly relevant in, in sort of framing those um, uh, types of, of discussions. Um, there's another woman in the, with the white shirt there. Um, so I want to ask about Seth Siegelub and bring that up again <coughs> for a bit. Because um, I was just, in, in my reading about him, the thing that comes up um, is that he was one of the first people to start selling work to companies, and, and he really actively sought out companies to sponsor his, to buy the work of his artists. And so um, the idea that he was telling them was that if you buy this artwork, it actually raises the profile of your company and raises the economic value of your company somehow. And so I was wondering, if, if someone buys that shark, um, why, what are they buying when they buy that shark? And then the second part of the question is, um, is that maybe connected somehow to why we're seeing an increase in sponsorship in the arts from Sky Vodka and Nike and companies like that? So what's that relationship exactly? Yeah, well, I mean, they speak to kind of corporate um, art sponsorship. I mean, a lot of that did have its roots in the 60s and 70s at companies like IBM um, who put a lot of money into it. Um, that being said, I mean, corporate sponsorship, by and large, or corporate collecting, rather, has not usually been a kind of corporate strategy, and it's tended to have its own cycles. A lot of what one finds when you scratch below the surface of a corporate collection is the fact that you basically have a CEO or a senior board member that is an avid contemporary art collector, and they're using the company as sort of another way of dealing with that collection. Um, Enron in the States is a pretty good example of that is like the sort of biggest funder of the arts in Houston, and then as soon as their company went belly up, um, it was basically the, you know, the few of the, the high-level guys at Enron, the kind of contemporary art scene in, in Houston <laughs> uh, didn't do so well. Um, in terms of public positioning from a corporate standpoint, I mean, I think contemporary art sponsorship, um, you know, helps position a company at a different angle. It adds a certain symbolic or kind of cultural component to it. Um, and I expect that one will see that more and more in the future, but it's also a cyclical thing. Um, I worked at the Serpentine for a number of years doing development work when I was living here in London. And um, you know, certainly in that kind of financial crisis period, companies were far less inclined to be cutting giant checks to the arts. Um, and it's a difficult thing nowadays as well as, as people are jockeying for that kind of attention. Um, in terms of what um, buying a shark signifies um, about its purchaser. I mean, you know, it's a it's a status symbol, really, above all else, um, and it shows a certain member of a club type thing um, that um, ultra wealthy um, people are, you know, for the, the lack of alternatives, increasingly looking for um, in a world in which luxury goods um, and other types of signifiers have gone global and become sort of more flat um, contemporary art, which is, um, in terms of you know, things like this, are inherently unique, um, you know, further differentiate these people. And I think it's for that same um, reason that you know, prices for what one considers, and there's always different parameters, but for one, things that people find to be the sort of truly extraordinary things um, you know, really have a limitless price in a way, as long as you have two people that are willing to bid against each other to, to acquire it. 
Um, so I think we'll see prices at the highest level continue to go up and up and up. It's a really good question, actually, and I think, um, did you guys, everybody here, she was asking sort of why digital art has not really ever come into the mainframe of kind of contemporary. Rain, um, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of, you know, new media and digital initiatives have been so, um, like Peter Weibel at ZKM in Germany, um, you know, it's like, it's a very side pursuit in a way, and I think a lot of people um, have in the art world have seen it really as art meets science rather than as um, you know sort of contemporary art in the broader sense. It's a similar problem that I think photography had for a long time, where photography was seen as a very particular practice that was not related to the kind of practice and discourse and dialogue of contemporary art as a whole. I suspect that in the future, one will see more and more and more of it. Um, do you think it has to do I think it has a lot to do with the gallery. I mean, Yeah, I think it's about re like reversing some of the biases. I mean, you know, it's it's a little bit, you know, there's very few major contemporary art galleries that have actively supported the work of like new media and digital artists. It's usually like, you know, um, uh, Bitforms Gallery in yeah, New York. Steve, Sachs is, the only guy. Steve is like giving digital art a bad name. Sorry? He's giving new media art Right, and you, so that's, well, but, but you're sort of answering your own question. <laughs> I said you're answering your own question. No, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think people need to take it up in a more wholesale way, and I think somehow those artists need to be sort of pulled out of the ghetto of being just a digital artist. And um, I think that like the kind of material is all there, and there's definitely enough artists that work with those practices that are totally relevant from a contemporary art in a broader sense discussion, but they've been too segmented into this kind of you know Silicon Valley or new media kind of thing, and they've not given the airtime, and there's not enough writing and discussion about it. I mean, you know, I studied here for many years with Julian Stalabras, who's like, you know, if there's one proponent of uh, the potentiality of a lot of this stuff, often, by the way, for you know political reasons as well, it's Julian. But at the same time, you know, it's been ten plus years that he's been writing on a lot of these guys, and they've never really been taken up. And you know, I think your point about the reception of a gallery like Bitforms, which is seen, you know, at some levels in the kind of 
I'd say kind of the art forum freeze community as a science project type thing is, is you know, it's unfortunate because I know Steve and I know a lot of the work that he does and it's really important, um, but it is segmented. Um, maybe there's time for like two more questions. Gentleman in the middle. Hello. Uh, one proof of uh, the maturity of the market would be if people started to show willingness to sue each other over unauthorized representations. Actually, if they sued each other a bit, maybe that would help prove the value of the things that are being sold and kick the market off a bit. Has there been any, any evidence of that uh, sort of activity? Um, so we should all sue each other? People suing each other because they violated, say, um, some of those aspects of ceremony, process, certificates that yep. you were describing, all those things which, as it were, underline the otherwise potentially questionable authenticity of the artworks. Yeah, I mean, I, when I, you know, like to your point, I think as the values of those things rise higher and higher, I think you'll inevitably see more um, people suing each other. Um, you know, from a, yeah, it's a great sign. <laughs> uh, to the extent that the values are not as high, you know, the cost of going through arbitration in a court, you know, a lot of these things to date have tended to get settled privately. Um, you know, from an art historical standpoint, you know, the Nodler scandal that's going on in New York right now, um, you know, is going to reveal all sorts of amazing art world um, dealings. Are you guys aware of that? Um, you know, Nodler was one of the most, you know, like with Acavella and Marlboro, like the most established um, you know, sort of classical galleries in New York, which um, basically closed earlier this year on the back of a variety of accusations that keep on surfacing that um, they had been working with an advisor who was sourcing works to the gallery and, and basically getting works um, that were fakes. And, um, you know, where you're selling works for $15, $20 million and then they're fakes, um, that does create a precedent for wanting to take legal action and the gallery on the back of that is closed, they will inevitably have to turn over a lot of evidence of a lot of those purchase and transaction records. And uh, you know, there will be a lot of interesting insight into the inner dealings of that gallery that will inevitably be revealed in the coming weeks and years and months. Um, so maybe that's something for you. Um, yeah, sure. I was just wondering that you mentioned relational art practices as service providers, and could you see this taking it off on a more mass level kind of experience economy, like this this becoming a proper source of income for artists? Um, uh, like that type of artistic yeah, like, practice? Yeah, like services, like services. I, I mean, I, I think it's difficult because a lot of the artists um, that work in those types of ways are so reliant on sticky forms of, you know, either public or semi-public, uh, semi semi-private support that there's only so much capital out there to fund that kind of work. Um, and a lot of them, I mean, Andrea Fraser is a really good example of somebody that's been involved in the theorizing and the writing around a lot of those practices she has, you know, she makes a lot of work for institutions. She's a full-time professor at UCLA, you know, and she's also represented by some pretty major galleries. So she's, you know, kind of a unique example of somebody that's had a foot in a variety of those worlds. But, you know, based simply on the economics of it, it's unlikely that it's ever going to totally take off. But again, I think one will see more and more of it um, generally. Maybe. 
<laughs> you should do it. <laughs> um, so with that, I think um, I think we're, we'll all um, have a beer if you want to have a beer, uh, and I'm happy to sign a book or two. Uh, but thank you um, very much. It was really, really. Um,